0: Be made for all men, for kings, and for all that, that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man. Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, to be testified in due time. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and why not? A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without loss and doubting in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array but which becometh women professing godliness with good works let the woman learn in silence with all subjection but i suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man but to be in silence for Adam was first formed then Eve and Adam was not deceived but the woman being deceived was in the transgression notwithstanding she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety and as ever we trust that the Lord will be unblessing to the reading of his infallible word. Amen. Amen. Well, this evening we are continuing studying the first letter of Paul to Timothy, and in due course, I trust that we shall also study to Timothy and Titus. And as I've mentioned before, these three epistles are often referred to as the pastoral epistles, possibly not only because they're addressed to some early Christian pastors but also because they give us guidance as to both the qualifications and the responsibilities of those who lead God's work. Both Timothy and Titus were Paul's sons in the faith and they both had pastoral responsibility. Timothy at Ephesus and Titus on the island of Crete. And we know that Paul wrote to them with the intention of helping them to ensure that 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 which took place in those churches for which they were responsible would be right and pleasing in God's sight. And in our studies we will see the practical information conveyed by these epistles on a variety of subjects. But these pastoral epistles do not confine themselves solely to practical matters. They also convey vital doctrinal truths about the scriptures, about salvation and about the Saviour. And so I trust that our studies in these epistles will help us all to serve God in whatever capacity we find ourselves in our churches. In our last study last month, we considered several aspects of the grace of God to Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle. Despite his having cruelly persecuted the early church, Saul was saved on the road to Damascus. And as Paul, we saw that he was enabled by the Lord, who counted him faithful and who put him into the ministry. And we saw last month how it should be the Lord alone who puts men into the ministry. We saw last month how Paul thought himself to be the chief of sinners who obtained mercy because he had sinned ignorantly in unbelief. And he believed that Christ's long suffering towards him before saving him would serve as a pattern for many who would be saved in the future by showing that the vilest offender can be pardoned. This was what should have dominated conversations at Ephesus, not fables or genealogical disputes, but this, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sins. We saw also last month how Paul continued his charge to Timothy and however men of God had prophesied as to what would be true for Timothy We saw that Timothy was to war, a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. Two of those who had made shipwreck of their faith were called Hymenaeus and Alexander, two men whom we saw that Paul had delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And we considered what that meant. By looking at a comparable account from 1 Corinthians, we saw that being delivered unto Satan can mean condemning someone to suffer physically, but not necessarily to suffer eternal damnation. And it's also inferred in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians that the one who had been excommunicated may eventually have been received back into the church. And thus the purpose of putting someone out of the church is that they might learn the error of their ways and hopefully eventually be readmitted to the fellowship. We're not to shy away from putting people out of the church, those who are guilty of heresy or any other gross sin. Our hope is that anyone who is put out of the church would be restored. But we know that this cannot always be guaranteed. The most important thing is that our churches should remain pure in both doctrine and behaviour. This evening we shall be considering just the first seven verses of the second chapter of 1 Timothy, which give us guidance as to who believers should be trained for and why. We shall also see that some of the verses we are covering this evening are very controversial verses, seeing that they are interpreted very differently by men of differing theological persuasion. However, controversy should never deflect us from studying all the scriptures. As we said from our previous two studies in one Timothy, there was false teaching at Ephesus. The Judaizers were alive and well in Ephesus with their insistence that salvation depended to some extent on law-keeping. There were Gnostics there also who taught that salvation was only really available to an elite class of people, to such as were capable of understanding mystical secrets. And thus both these groups put limits on who could be saved. And would have had to leave any interest in praying for the unsaved. But Paul wanted it to be known that there should be a width, a width to prayer, that all classes of men should be prayed for. And this is why he wrote those words. I exhort, therefore, that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and given of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty So this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour there should be no limit imposed with regard to those for whom we pray whether it be for their salvation or whether it be just to give an example that they do no harm to the people of God And notice that subdivision into supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks. Those first three terms are very similar, are they not? But, as the Holy Spirit prompted Paul to use those three different terms, it behooves us to look a little more deeply into those different terms. By looking at the original week, we can tell that supplications are requests made where there is a perceived need whereby we ask god that he will meet that need
1: the greek word translated as prayers is a general word for prayer and in the scriptures it's a word only ever used
0: with reference to god thus it follows that prayers here conveys a sense of worship and of reverence and intercessions are requests which are made in a spirit of advocacy and sympathy, with compassion, whereby we might identify ourselves with those for whom we train. And the last of the four terms, thanksgiving, is clearly seen to be different from the first three, which are all types of requests. All our requests should be accompanied by thanksgivings, whereby we thank God for his past mercies, and whereby we gratefully acknowledge that we are privileged to be used in his service. So these things then should characterise our communion with our Heavenly Father when we pray for others. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks. This is the spirit in which we should pray. And notice that Paul singles out for prayer a class of people that might easily have been omitted at a time when rulers could have been tyrants and despots. He said that we should pray for kings and for all that are in our own authority. And of course, this is very significant to us, considering the death of our queen and the fact that we have now got a new king who may not be of the same caliber as his mother. Now, most of us in our private prayers may be inclined just to pray for members of our families, and for fellow believers, perhaps for work colleagues and for any others that we regularly have contact with. Most of us wouldn't have regular contact with Buddhists, people who are in authority, at a national or even at a local level. But this doesn't mean that we shouldn't be praying for them. We can pray for their conversion if we know that they are unsafe, we can also pray that they might exercise their god-given authority justly and wisely i say god-given because ultimately god sovereignly decides does he not who has authority those who have studied the epistles of peter will know that he gave the following instructions to believers he wrote this submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the lord's sake whether it be to the king As supreme or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. He also wrote, Honour all men, love the Brotherhood, fear God, honour the king. And we can see from those verses how believers are to be loyal citizens who obey the law of the land, unless in so doing we would contravene God's. And it follows that if we wish to live quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness and honesty we should aim to be model citizens and we should pray for those who are in authority. Paul also told Titus of the need for believers to be the lower subjects. We'll come across this hopefully in due course but Titus 3 and verse 1 shows us that Paul wrote these words. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. And there we see, doing up the consistency of the scriptures in Paul and Peter's epistles. And before moving on, it would be worth our while reflecting on what exactly it means to lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. We need to bear in mind that the New Testament was written at a time when believers were being persecuted for their faith. And those men who persecuted them would do so on the slightest pretext. Believers were often, for example, unjustly accused of sedition or of seeking to undermine authority. Believers would have been happy in such times just to have been able to live quietly and peaceably. Those who live godly and honest lives would have given no one any cause to find fault in them. And so if they were then persecuted notwithstanding, it wouldn't have been because of ungodliness or dishonesty. And our own conduct today, our conduct today, should be such that we give no one unnecessary offence nor just calls for criticism. Prayer for others, we read, is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour. This is of course a yardstick that we can apply to every aspect of our behaviour. If we were to regularly ask ourselves, is what I'm about to do good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour? Surely we would live better Christian lives. Paul shows us that we are ever in the sight of God our Saviour, whose saving character is manifested in his only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now earlier I mentioned that there should be a width to prayer, that all classes of men could be prayed for, and I referred to all classes of men for a specific reason. When we come across the word all in the scriptures, or the expression the world, for us to be able to gain an understanding of what is being taught, we must look at the words in context, and we must also compare scripture with scripture. Romans 3 verse 23 tells us this, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we know that the all there clearly applies to all mankind, everyone. However, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22, you'll find there this statement, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now the all, in the first part of the statement, refers to all mankind. All mankind became subject to death as a result of Adam's sin. But the all, in the second part of the statement, only applies to all those who put their trust in Christ. All who are in Christ. Again, if you were to turn to John 12 and verse 9, you'll see there that the Pharisees, speaking of the Lord Jesus, said this, Perceive ye how prove out nothing. Behold, the world is gone after him." Now the Pharisees worked for a moment suggesting that absolutely everyone in the world had gone after Christ, and so I hope we see the truth of what I said earlier, that for us to understand what is being taught in any place, we must look at the context and we must also compare Scripture with Scripture. Now, the reason why I've taken the time to establish this principle is because the next verse in 1 Timothy 2 has caused divisions among believers down through the centuries and also continues to cause divisions in our own way. Mm-hmm. You see, Paul wrote that prayer for all men is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. And theologians are divided into two camps with regard to the meaning of all men in this verse. With some believing that it is speaking of all mankind and others believing that it refers to all classes of men. Those who believe that it speaks of all classes of men do so because they believe that God's will is not that every person in the world should be saved, but only the elect, those whom he has chosen to salvation. Since if it was God's will that all men should be saved, then they would all be saved. Mm-hmm. They believe that the elect are not confined to any particular class or station, but that God chooses people from all different walks of life. Princes, paupers, diplomats, and doesn't. In fact, does not the scripture teach us that those in the lowest nations of life are more likely to be saved? Paul told this to the Corinthians, he wrote this, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And those who believe that God wants men from all walks of life to be saved similarly believe that God wants us to pray for men in all walks of life, kings and those in authority, as well as those whom we might know more intimately. However, others believe that God does want all men to be saved and that's only their refusal to come to Christ that prevents their salvation. However, whilst it is true, all those who refuse to come to Christ for salvation do so willingly and are fully responsible for their refusal, it's also true that no one can come to Christ for salvation without the operation of the Holy Spirit in their lives. We need to understand this, that unless the Spirit of God changes a person, and makes them willing to repent and to be converted, they never will be saved.
1: Salvation is of the Lord, and only those who are quickened by the
0: Holy Spirit will be saved. Thus it's clearly seen that it is God who determines who will be saved, and that all those who are saved are only saved by divine election. And those who refuse to come to Christ for salvation do so of their own will. And thus they are fully responsible for their refusal. Paul explained this, did he not, in his letter to the Romans in chapter 9, where he foresaw that there would be those who would accuse the Lord of being unfair in his election of some for salvation and his leaving others in their sins. If you go to Romans 9, commencing at verse 19, you'll find there these words. Thou wilt then say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump, to make one vessel unto honour, and another unto dishonor? What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had a poor prepared unto glory. We need to understand that our Lord is absolutely sovereign in everything, including salvation. Now I remember my introduction to the doctrine of election over 50 years ago, shortly after I become a Christian. And I remember my struggle to come to terms with it. But I came to see that it was without doubt what the scriptures teach. And that because the scriptures teach it, we must not argue against it, we must accept it. And so once we understand the sovereignty of God in salvation, This will, of necessity, influence our understanding of verses such as those before us today. And the only conclusion that I can come to is that all is here is stating that God wants people from all classes of society to be saved, which is why we should pray for people from all classes of society. Now, you might disagree with me. You're perfectly entitled so to do. There are many people who believe that God desires the salvation of all men, but has not decreed that all men should be saved. But I have to find that, I do find that a somewhat inconsistent view. But whatever view we take, it will behove us all to think again about those for whom we regularly pray, so that we can ensure that we're not just praying for what our nearest but for others as well, as we've seen from the Scriptures this evening. The Lord Jesus said this, to he Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust, For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same. And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Now before we leave verse 4 of 1 Timothy 2, you'll notice that it speaks about Salvation is a prerequisite of someone coming to the knowledge of the truth. The Greek word for knowledge is epignosis. And we know that Paul uses it four times altogether in the pastoral epistles to differentiate it from the false knowledge of those false teachers at Ephesus. Only true believers can come to a knowledge of what we might term true truth. And it's only the scriptures which give us that knowledge, why, which is a very good reason, is it not, why we should, we should ever be students of the word. Now, verse 5 of 1 Timothy 2 is a very famous verse, a verse on which it's possible to base a whole sermon. As a matter of instance, I've just written a sermon on that verse. Uh, you might hear it one day. But this evening, it must suffice us to consider its main import. Many false gods were worshipped in those days, but Paul stressed that there was only one true God. The Jews knew this, but they also needed to understand that there was only one way for men of any nationality to get right with that one true God. And that is through the mediation or intercession of his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For there is one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. A mediator is someone who intervenes between two parties with the intent of reconciling them and the Lord Jesus bridges the gulf that separates sinful mankind from a holy God. It's only through Christ that men can draw at night to God. There is absolutely no other way the Lord Jesus said "Did he not, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by Me."
1: And yet we know, do we not, of some so-called Christian churches who teach that there are others who can perform
0: a mediatorial office besides the same. Roman Catholics, for example, are taught that Mary, the Mother of Christ, can act as an intercessor, as can various dead saints, so they say. In fact, I've heard that Roman Catholics teach that it's better to use Mary's supposed intercessory powers because she is said to be more sympathetic than her son. This is why so many Roman Catholics are encouraged to pray to Mary. What wicked lies false religion is capable of and how dishonoring to the Lord Jesus Christ only mediator between God and man is Christ. The man Christ Jesus. Christ is fully human and fully divine. He is the God-man and as such is perfectly fitted to act as a mediator between God and man. Christ is the sinner's only hope, having given himself a ransom for all. A ransom for all to be testified in due time. Now, you will have noticed that we have the word all here in this verse. And so we need to consider whether Christ ransomed the whole world by his sacrificial death or just his own people. And it will help us if we look at what the Lord himself said about the purpose of his sacrifice. If you turn to John's Gospel 10, verse 11, John 10, verse 11, you'll see there what the Lord said. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. For the sheep. And we know from elsewhere in the scriptures that only true believers are Christ sheep. The others, we find, are described as goats. Again, if you turn to Mark's Gospel 10, verse 45, Mark 10, 45, you'll see there that the Savior said that he came to give his life a ransom many and so we can see that Paul is likely to be again speaking about all classes of men when he refers to Christ Jesus having given himself a ransom for all we are to pray for all classes of men because God wants men from all classes to be saved and Christ gave his life as a ransom for all classes of men now it has to be said that there are some Christians who believe that Christ did pay a ransom price for all men. And they believe this because they don't believe it would have been possible for the Lord Jesus to suffer any more than he did. They therefore believe that the work of Christ was sufficient for all, but efficacious only for the elect. They believe that the effect of the atonement was limited, but that the price paid was sufficient to ransom the whole world. They say it was an infinite price. Well, that view is not to be confused with Universalism, which teaches that the Lord Jesus died to save all men and that therefore all men and women and boys and girls will be saved. But it is a view with which many others disagree. and The reason for their disagreeing is because They feel that God would be unjust if sin was punished twice. Their argument is this. If our Savior has paid the price of anyone's sin, then that person should not have to pay the price themselves. They believe that the price paid by the Savior was only in respect of his people and that he would have had to suffer more if more people were to have been saved. Thus they believe the effect of the atonement was limited, and that the price paid was sufficient to ransom only to the elect and not one person more. Now, I hope I haven't confused anyone here this evening, and uh, this is something that can be discussed, you know, uh, because people do um, disagree on it. It has to be said that many men of God have had to differ on their views regarding the meaning of those verses. In, what I would reiterate though is that we can't jump over certain verses in the scriptures just because they may be controversial it's important I might say that we consider all the scriptures and not just many what we should be amazed at is that our saviour should have died for anyone why should he have been prepared to suffer for the sins of those who were his enemies why Should God's plan of redemption include any of us? We may never know, and certainly not on this side of eternity, but we praise God for his grace to us nonetheless. Christ gave himself of his own volition as a ransom for his people to be testified in due time. And this latter phrase is thought to parallel Galatians 4 and verses 4 to 5. That's Galatians 4 verses 4 to it which tell us this, when the fullness of the time was come, see the parable there, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. The Lord Jesus offered himself as a ransom at exactly the right time in God's plan of redemption and his sacrifice testifies, does it not, of God's love for his people. And Paul knew himself to have been appointed a preacher of those truths which he had just listed, that God is our Saviour, and that Jesus Christ is our Mediator, who gave himself as a ransom for many. Paul wrote, Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ, and why not? a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. Now in our first study in 1 Timothy, we saw that Paul described himself there as being an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Saviour and Lord Jesus Christ. And now we again see him pointing out that his appointment as an apostle was of God. In our second study, we saw him explain how it was that Christ Jesus put him into the ministry. And now we see him again pointing out that his appointment as a preacher was similarly of God. He wrote that he had been ordained a preacher and an apostle. Now as we've already seen there were those false teachers at Ephesus. Those who had never been ordained of God. Of his appointment Paul could say this I would speak the truth in Christ and lie not which distinguished him from those false teachers. Paul had been appointed a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. Thus his ministry was to be amongst the Gentiles, and so he is known as the Apostle to the Gentiles, and he was so in faith and verity, which may describe the subject matter of his teaching ministry, but also that he himself was faithful and true in his ministry. The very opposite of those false teachers at Ephesus. Now it will not have escaped your notice that in each one of our three studies so far in 1 Timothy we have had our attention drawn either directly or indirectly to the false teachers who opposed the gospel of God's grace and we need to ask ourselves whether this was just a problem applicable at that time, in that place, or whether it is a constant problem everywhere. Are there false teachers in our own learning? Are we aware of any? Can we not say that there will always be opposition to the gospel of God's grace from within the church as well as from without? Thus, we ever need to be on our guard against any teaching that isn't in accord with the scriptures? And this responsibility rests not just with overseers of churches, but with individuals as well. Since overseers themselves have been guilty of introducing error, we all need to be stored for the church. Well, we've come to a conclusion of our third study in 1 Timothy, and I trust that we've seen the importance of not just praying for our nearest and dearest. We are to pray intelligently, although not indiscriminately. realizing that God will save people from all walks of life. And also trust that we've been reminded this evening of how the Lord Jesus is our mediator, ever interceding on our behalf, ever intervening on our behalf, and how he gave a life, his life a ransom for many. May we all rejoice in these truths and ever live to serve him. Amen. Amen.
1: ZANG We